Kia I'm Lewis Holden from the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, and I'm delighted uh, to be here to introduce this, the fourth and final instalment in our joint venture with IPANS uh, to reflect on and, and have talks about the 100th uh, centenary of the modern public service in New Zealand. Uh, our speaker today is Peter Hughes. Many of you, uh, I think, uh, know Professor Hughes. He's had a 30-year career in the New Zealand state sector, a career that's encompassed policy, operations and organisational development across a range of senior uh, executive roles. He's currently Professor and Head of the School of Government at the Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, Peter began his career with the Department of Social Welfare and later served as Deputy Director General of Health, Chief Executive of the Health Funding Authority, Secretary for Internal Affairs, before becoming Chief Executive of the Ministry of Social Development in 2001. Peter is a Fellow of the New Zealand Institute of Management and the New Zealand Institute of Public Administration and currently serves on a number of boards, including the Government's Better Public Services Advisory Board. Uh, given that I'm the last speaker in this series, what I thought I might do is a bit of a walkthrough of the last 30 years uh, of public service in New Zealand, but using my own uh, career as a bit of a reference point. So I'm going to largely talk about the current system, but mostly with a forward focus. We will need to talk a little bit about the public management system itself uh, and its architecture, but this is something that I'm personally passionate about, and I'm particularly passionate about uh, further reform of our system in New Zealand. Uh, we led the world in the late 80s with our reform of public management system in New Zealand. And my own view is that we're on the cusp of further reform and we have an opportunity to, to move forward as strongly as we did then. But this time we have the opportunity to really free up human creativity uh, and innovation in the public services, but more importantly to deliver much better outcomes for New Zealanders. So, a brief history. We go back to the system that we left with new public management, created by the Public Service Act uh, in 1912 and largely unchanged up until the reforms of the late 80s, with a focus on inputs and process, equity and integrity across the system, but largely an administrative paradigm. Now, I started my public service career a long time ago, in the early 80s, uh, and I started as a basic grade clerk in the old Department of Social Welfare. And there's at least one other person in the room uh, from the old Department of Social Welfare. Rob Brown, welcome. Uh, so what Rob Brown can testify that what I'm about to tell you is true and how it was. So I started as a basic grade clerk, early 90s. We were called basics for short, just so we knew our, our place in the, in the food chain uh, in what was a very, very hierarchical system. So as a basic grade clerk of 007101, I reported to a section clerk who was a 007102, and she reported to a senior section clerk, 007103, and she reported to the divisional officer, 007104. Now, we're into he territory now. Now, the divisional officer, if you ever watched Gliding On, was the person on whose desks the glide time sheets sat. So this was the person's desk that you had to sign in on every day. Uh, and the divisional officer 
uh, reported to a 007105 senior divisional officer. So we're into serious big time now, own office down on Skid Row, where all the managers sat. Um, and they reported to a 007106 senior executive officer, own office, some furniture, real big time. And they reported to a 007107 assistant director benefits and pensions, serious big time, own office, lounge suite. Yep. Now, the Assistant Director of Benefits and Pensions reported to a 007108, who was the District Director of the Department, uh, and the whole time that I was in the Wellington District Office, I never saw this man. He was just far too important for somebody like, he must have been in the lift at some stage with me, but uh, I didn't know that. So in that system, which was intensely hierarchical, the key point is most of the productive effort Apart from decision-making, most of the productive effort was undertaken by the basic grade clerk group. And the purpose of all those other levels was to check or authenticate uh, or quality control. And work would literally go through each of those levels until it reached a level at which a person could make a decision. And sometimes that was very, very high up in the system. So a lot of things, uh, and I'm talking individual benefit cases, decision-making, a lot of things would go to head office. So they would be formally submitted to head office, and in head office there'd be a similar hierarchical structure, and they would go up through the levels until somebody uh, would make a decision on the matter. I can remember quite uh, well doing head office submissions. There were two horrible tasks in the office for basic grade clerks, things called due and paid assessments, which had a lot of maths, and head office submissions. I used to trade my due and paid assessments for head office submissions and look where it got me. Uh, and uh, what would happen is you'd, you'd do this huge big written submission, it would go off to head office, it would be there for an age. Could be there for you know 12 months, 18 months, and then it would come back and there'd be one page on the top of the file and in red type, in red type it would say the decision is, colon, it would tell you what the decision was. There'd be no justification or rationale, and you'd just get on and do it. Anyway, a system of manuals and uh, internal policy resources uh, in every department and a system of service-wide manuals as well. Now, I've not been able to find a copy of the public service manual, but I have got some material from the old Department of Social Welfare manuals. At one stage, I had a job uh, on war pensions division, which was a good thing because war pensions were com complex uh, so this was regarded as, as a good move, uh, and one of the things I had to do uh, was deal with the boots that the war pensioners bought in, the orthotic boots that they no longer needed, and what we had to do was to mark the boots so they couldn't be reused. Now, there was a whole section in the manual about how to do this, and I'll just read briefly from this uh, so you can get a, get a sense of uh, how uniform the system was. So, three pairs of surgical boots may be on issue at any one time and kept in good repair at departmental expenses. Before authorising the issue of any replacements, a director must satisfy himself by inspection that the pair for which replacement is actually asked is no longer serviceable or capable of repair. So, you know, God forbid somebody would get something uh, to which they were not entitled. The boots, are to be, the boots to be replaced are to be branded by punching a hole in the tongue or the upper guard against the same boots being submitted a second time for replacement. Now, there was a special machine for this, and there was a diagram in the manual as to how you should do it. It had to be, you know, X inches from the top and Y inches from, from the bottom. 
There was also uh, a part in the manual uh, on giving dictation. So you may remember some of you the days of typing pools, and there was a bit in the manual that told us how to give dictation to typists. Just quote some bits from that. Good dictation saves time, effort, and materials. Prepare your work. During dictation, be friendly and considerate. Typists are human beings, not machines. Use your notes and concentrate. Lack of notes and concentration produces official ease and padding. Don't smoke, chew, or put your hand over your mouth. It clutters up your speech and makes it difficult for you to be understood. Don't fidget, it distracts the typist, and certainly don't walk about. So even a section in the manual on how to give dictation. I'm not sure that any of us read it, but it was there. And of course, there was a whole manual on supervision. So if you managed to get to 102 or above, there was a whole manual on how you carried out your role as a supervisor, a frontline supervisor or a, or a manager. Uh, and this is from that manual. Common faults requiring disciplinary action. Irregular attendance. Overlong absences at tea breaks. Absent from the office during working hours. Leaving the desk for long periods. Well, that's all pretty reasonable. Conversations with visitors to the section. Tardiness in starting work. The staff is expected to actually start at the correct time and such practices as reading the newspaper, discussing racing or sporting results should not be permitted. Repetition of errors previously explained. Inaccuracies due to carelessness, careless writing and untidiness in forms. This is a good one. Direct approach to a more senior officer for advice on work. This most annoying practice often arises when individuals on the staff rightly or wrongly consider that the section clerk does not know his job. It must be stopped. So this is what we would, this is what we would, well you're subverting the hierarchy. So this is what we would call looping. Uh, in today's language. Too much use of the telephone for private conversations, fair enough. Um, this one's my favourite, loafing on the job. <laughs> yep. Uh, and lack of interest. So there were these system-wide manuals and things were spelt out in, in a great amount of detail. Uh, and as situations arose that weren't covered in the manuals, they were put in the manuals. And so every week, just about, there would be circular memoranda that would come and tell you about the latest amendment uh, to the manuals. And I remember updating and keeping up to date these manuals was pretty much a full-time job in its own right. Decision-making was held very high up in the system. Of course, we had, in those days, the State Services Commission, and at one stage, uh, I managed to get myself promotion to uh, 007102. I became an assistant staff training officer in the head office. And after a while there, they wanted to promote me over two grades to 007104 staff training officer. Now, there wasn't a hell of a lot of money in it, but it was a big deal getting promoted over two grades, almost unheard of. And so, of course, at that time, the permanent head of the department, the Director General of Social Welfare, could not make that decision. He did not have delegation to make that decision. So it went off to the State Services uh, Commission, where it languished for, I think, about 18 months. And so I'm, you know, wringing my hands for 18 months, walking up and down Molesworth Street, praying, you know, sending good vibes into the State Services Commission. And after 18 months, it came back, and the answer was no. <laughs> that was it. You know, this was a system uh, with a lot of clutter and a lot of bureaucracy in it. 
and I've made light of some of that. But the really important thing to understand about that system, which served us very, very well for a long time in New Zealand, is it was a hell of a lot better than what we had in this country prior to the 1912 Act. And I'm sure um, John Martin pointed that out in, in his talk. So prior to the 1912 Act in New Zealand, like a lot of countries around the world and like a lot of developing countries uh, in the world today, we did have elements of patronage and corruption. We did have ministers involved in the appointment of civil servants. We did have ministers involved in the setting of remuneration of civil servants. Uh, we had individual civil servants' performance debated in the Parliament of New Zealand. So that system was a huge advance on that. And there are countries, as I say, developing countries around the world that would regard that system that we left some time ago as a huge advance on the patronage and corruption uh, and chaotic forms of government that they have. But it was a very inefficient system. There was very little focus on the customer and there was very little notion of customer service. It was very stifling of human potential and innovation and creativity. And so, in the late 80s, there was somewhat of a revolution in New Zealand. And I can remember this, it was like a, a Vatican II of the, of the civil service. It was greeted with great expectation, because it happened very suddenly. If you were a worker in the system, obviously, uh, there was clearly a whole process leading up to it, but we had the State Sector Act in 1988, and the Public Finance Act in 1989, and a freeing up of the system. Managers were given the authority over inputs to manage. There's a focus on outputs, which is the jargon that we still use, but basically we're talking products and services. A uh, big focus on efficiency, and the, and the paradigm shifted. It was no longer an administrative paradigm. It was a managerial paradigm. Now, this change took a huge effort to implement. I remember at the time in the old Department of Social Welfare, we spent some period trying to figure out what our outputs were. Now this seems strange, standing here today and looking back, uh, that a big government department would struggle to define its products and services, but we did. And then there was the process of creating performance measures around each of those outputs, because of course government departments don't operate in the market, and the market doesn't do that for you. You have to create those measures. Decision-making pushed right down close to clients, a focus on delivering products and services to customers, efficiency and productivity focused on and improved, and a lot of human capital in the system freed up, uh, and we saw innovation and a fair bit of creativity. So in the old Department of Social Welfare, uh, we split the old Department of Social Welfare up into business units. Each business unit had its own national office, was more or less semi-autonomous, own budgets, own delegation. In the southern region where I was regional manager of the New Zealand Income Support Service, in the southern region of the Income Support Service, we set about trying to achieve same-day service. So in those days, if you wanted a benefit, so if you wanted an unemployment benefit, on average you'd wait for six weeks to get one. So you'd go into the office, fill out all the forms, go away, and about six weeks later, on average, you'd get a decision on your benefit application. So we set about trying to achieve same-day service, which we did achieve. And the way that was achieved was probably a thousand little innovations dreamed up by frontline staff, by basic grade staff, as they were in the system. So we were free to do that, uh, whereas in the old system we couldn't. 
We had new look officers, we had corporate dress, we had clients, not beneficiaries. I don't think we went as far as customers, but we had clients. Uh, and all this happened because the focus was on products and services, not how you did the job. There was a lot more freedom around how you did the job. Now, when we made this shift, uh, we didn't throw the baby out with the bath water. So we retained the merit principle, we retained a notion of a politically neutral public service, we retained a uh, focus on integrity and equity of treatment across the system. And so I like to see the reforms of the late 80s as, as an advance, where we built on the good parts of the old system, carried them into the new, but were able to get much more customer focused and do a much better job for citizens. Now, as an interesting aside, there was a period, I think, of uh, some years when all of the input controls came off, but none of the output or product and service accountabilities went on. Very interesting period. And during that period, we had, uh, in the old Department of Social Welfare, a regional manager who was so disgusted with the uh, national IT system, he went and built his own, just for his region. Uh, same regional manager filled a warehouse with office furniture and equipment that he bought up cheap uh, and on sold at a profit uh, to his regional manager colleagues. Rob Brown, this is true, isn't it? Yes, Rob's nodding. We had a manager in Christchurch who signed a 30-year lease on the building that is now the Millennium Hotel. That's that great big huge uh, white building sitting in there behind the cathedral. So we had a 30-year lease on every single floor in that building. And we had a manager who unwittingly built two buildings for the same single purpose in Rotorua, which caused, uh, as I remember, a wee bit of scandal at the time when that became um, public. So now we're uh, some 30 years on, and that system, which is known in the literature as new public management, you know, has a very good reputation around the world, is largely considered to a greater or lesser degree benchmark best practice. To a greater or lesser degree, jurisdictions around the world have emulated or copied or replicated aspects of it. And in fact, now in my new role as head of uh, the School of Government at uh, Victoria University, I'm being encouraged by some to treat that as an export education product to developing countries, because it is still uh, very highly regarded. But some 30 years on from when that system was implemented, in this country we're still struggling to gain traction on some big issues. So while we've lifted the quality of service delivery, when it comes to outcomes, when it comes to effectiveness, we're still struggling. And so 30 years on, we're still struggling with issues of uh, child poverty and disparity, family violence, child abuse and neglect, intergenerational welfare dependency, educational underachievement, a long tail of low paid jobs in the New Zealand labour market um, and the perennial issue of productivity and economic competitiveness and growth. And the point is, if those issues were capable of being solved alone by policy setting changes or policy initiatives, we would have got more traction than we have. And my proposition uh, is that the delivery side of the public service, how the public service works, is almost, in respect of some of those issues, as important as the policy settings. And so we're about to embark on another period of reform, and my view is this could again be world-leading. Somehow in this little country we don't appear to be weighted down by 
our recent history like other jurisdictions. Somehow in this little country we just get on and do stuff, we try stuff, and I think we're about to do that again, and I think uh, the reform could be as big as that undertaken nearly 30 years ago. But this time, the focus of the reform, I think, is on better outcomes. So uh, we have better public services. Better public services really is about two things. It's about efficiency and productivity and those sorts of things. And I just ask you to take that bit and park it in your minds. Happy to come back to that at the, at the end. But the, the really big idea in better public services is a focus on outcomes as well as outputs. A focus on effectiveness as well as products and services. Now, the first thing that you figure out if you're working in government and you start to focus on trying to achieve better outcomes, you very quickly arrive at the point where you come to understand that actually, if you want to, unlike delivering products and services, if you want to achieve better outcomes, it's all about integration. It's all about cooperation, collaboration, integration. So most government departments have everything that they need to deliver excellent customer service to their customers. But when it comes to delivering outcomes, a lot of what you need to achieve those outcomes is in other agencies or in the non-government sector or maybe even the private sector. And our vertically integrated model is not fit for purpose when it comes to achieving uh, better outcomes. Now, better outcomes or out an outcomes focus has always been part of the theory of the current system but I would argue not much of the reality, and there are, there are reasons for that that I'm happy to discuss uh, as well. So let's talk a little bit about an outcomes-focused system and what that might look like. And uh, a bit of a caveat here, I think at this point in time in New Zealand we've solved this issue more in practice than we have in theory. So in most government departments now, there are people out there at the front end who are working in new, different, creative, innovative ways uh, with an outcomes focus, but who are being constrained or who are straining against the constraints of the current output-focused public management system that we work in. So I think we're moving to a new paradigm. The focus is outcomes, not, not just outputs. The focus is, is effectiveness, not just efficiency. And where the paradigm itself, I think, is about leadership not about managerialism. It's about working across systems without the use of formal authority. When, in my last role as Chief Executive of the Ministry of Social Development, I spent quite a lot of time and effort trying to get an outcomes focus in the organisation. And I spent a lot of time talking to frontline staff uh, about this. The way that I found that resonated most with, with them was simply to describe it like this. We have a job of work to do and that is the delivery of outputs or products and services to our customers. That is the bottom line to our job. That is the bottom line to what it is we do in this organisation. But there's also a top line to our job, and that's the achievement of better outcomes. And we need to do both. One is about the core business. One's about good or excellent customer service. One's about achieving better outcomes, being more effective. We have everything in the organisation we need to deliver the former, we don't the latter, and we need to start to learn to work in different ways. So if you're a work and income case manager, the bottom line is clients get their full and correct entitlement, good job matches are made, placements are made, um, but the top line, and that's, that's all about the service, but the top line might be doing everything we can 
to help that person get on and be successful in their life. Uh, and if you've got, for example, six kids in a two-bedroom house and the kids get sick all the time, can't hold down a job, then housing's going to be part of the mix. If you've got drug and alcohol issues going on, drug and alcohol counselling and services is going to be part of the mix. If you've got mental health issues, the mental health services are going to need to be involved. If you've got debt, budget management, um, debt restructuring is going to be part of the mix. Now, all of those things don't exist in work and income, let alone uh, the Ministry of Social Development. So it's about working horizontally across the system to bring those services together around individuals, families and communities. And so in work and income, they started focusing on on the top line. They started focusing on better outcomes and they started focusing on how could they work with clients to help them get on and be successful in their lives and not just simply provide income support services to them. Uh, because often just simply doing that entrenches problems and you get worse outcomes just by providing the service. And so they created a model where basically they focused on using employment as the primary intervention but wrapping up a number of other interventions around that with the focus of helping people get on and be successful in their lives. And immediately they found they had to connect with other parts of the organisation. Immediately they found they had to connect with other agencies. And so they just got on and did this. So they built relationships uh, and they started working across the system, horizontally across the system, and not just focusing on their, their core services. And we called that the integrated service response. And they just got on and did this at the front of the organisation. Uh, as this progressed, we found that it was more effective if you were able to co-locate some of these services. Uh, so we took some work and income service centres and we changed their names. We called them community link centres. And we invited these people that were working with the, the frontline case managers into the centres. So we had Housing Corporation New Zealand, we had budget advisory services, uh, we had mental health services visiting, we had drug and alcohol services, the full suite. And some of these services permanently located themselves in the community link centres. So I think community link centres today are the frontline service centre for the Housing Corporation. We then set about defining a set of outcomes after a while. So they were just doing what they thought was the right thing to do. We set about defining a set of outcomes and measuring our progress against those outcomes. And I'll just run through uh, some of the numbers. We found that just with, um, with employment, with, with the notion of sustainable employment, that's getting somebody into a job, you know, a better job, a career, somebody that attaches to the labour market permanently, 41% better outcomes for people on the domestic purposes benefit than people that weren't being worked in this way. 38% for invalids benefit and sickness benefit clients and 15% for unemployment benefit clients. So just doing the normal job of work, but working with people in this way, you get better results. Support of social outcomes. These numbers are a bit out of date, but they'll be indicative. 83% of children not fully immunised, now immunised. Almost 100% improvement in school attendance and lack of truancy. 73% improvement in school achievement. 30% of people in employment part-time increase their hours. 20% of people unable to manage finances now able to meet everyday costs. Close to 90% of those clients not enrolled with the general practitioner now enrolled with the general practitioner. 75% of people living in poor quality housing or overcrowded homes helped into more appropriate housing. So there's a range of kind of social outcomes there, and I haven't covered all of them. 
but clearly this approach was working and was making a difference. Uh, but it's not what you'd normally expect to happen in a work and income service centre. So about part way through this journey, uh, I got myself into a bit of trouble with the central agencies, I won't name which one, but there was some consternation that we in the Ministry of Social Development were making ourselves accountable for a whole range of outcomes, much broader than those in our SOI, or those that uh, fitted uh, with our, our, our core service delivery brief. And so I had a conversation uh, with some officials uh, from one of the central agencies that went like this. How can you in the Ministry of Social Development, or how can you as the Chief Executive of the Ministry, be accountable for all of these outcomes? You know, how, Peter, can you be example, uh, accountable for health outcomes? How can you be uh, accountable for education outcomes? How can you be uh, accountable for health outcomes? And my response uh, to them was, well, I just simply am. And they said, well, you know, this is not right. This is, this is not how the system works. There are other people in the system accountable for those outcomes. And so we had a long kind of circular conversation, and at the end of it I just simply said, well, look, we are out there, we're trying things, this is making a difference. These outcomes are being achieved. It is making a difference in the lives of these individuals and families. The problem is actually not with what we're doing, the problem is the system that sits over the top of it, and actually that is your job. Go away, have a think about it, we need to fix it. Now, of course, uh, I'm at the School of Government and it's my problem as well, and I have to be part of the solution, which is why I'm here today. But there are lots of examples like this right throughout the public service of people straining against the current system. And so as we move forward, what I'm saying is the product and service focus becomes the bottom line. The outcomes focus becomes the top line. And there is a lot of that happening across the civil service. I think the next stage is to join it up. Uh, they're doing that in Porirua, for example, where they've connected the local community link into the local district court. Uh, if you've ever sat in a district court for any period of time, it's a big sausage factory, especially a, a district court dealing with things like family violence. There's an incident, dad ends up in court, dad gets sentenced to a community uh, sentence, that's it. What happens in Porirua now is before dad goes to court, he goes through that process, there is a plan, he agrees it, he gets sentenced to the plan, that's what happens in court. And so I think the public service of the future is going to be as much networked horizontally as we are currently organised vertically in departmental organisations. And so whatever node on the network of social service provision or other provision you or your family hit, the system wraps itself around you in a virtual sense and looks after you with an outcomes focus. And just very quickly, if you think about what it's going to take to make that happen, it's going to take a massive change to the model, but massive change to the way in which the public service works and is organised. So we need ways of working collectively. At the moment, there are two choices in the public service, an officials committee or a merger. Those are the two choices we have. We need other ways of working together. We've started to experiment with sectoral clusters. I think we need a joint venture vehicle. Spend a lot of time trying to put uh, collaborative action uh, together in the Ministry of Social Development and couldn't find a vehicle to do it. We need ways of joining agencies that are not structural uh, but allow us to get the benefits of being able to work more closely. Um, accountability, the whole notion of accountability needs to change. At the moment we've, we live in a world where we think accountability is vertical uh, and relates to a single person. In this world there's going to have to be shared and collective accountability. 
This happens in the private sector through the board model, but we struggle with it in the public sector because for 30 years we've been conditioned to think that accountability is about a single person in a vertically integrated system. Performance measurement. It's relatively easy to measure the delivery of an output, a product or a service at a point in time. It's a lot harder to measure the achievement of outcomes or results over time. One's performance measurement, the other's evaluation. We're going to have to learn how to do that just as we learned how to do performance measurement around outputs. And the biggest challenge uh, that I see is culture. We've been socialised in 30 years, over 30 years, in a way of thinking about our work in the public services and doing things in the public services, and that now needs to change. And so we can spend a lot of time fiddling at the top of the system, changing policy settings or changing aspects of the model, uh, but if we don't have a system-wide led culture change process, we're not going to get the benefits uh, of working in that sort of way. That's probably, I think, the biggest challenge that we have. A couple of other things. We need to think about privacy differently. We're in a world where privacy is about data and data matching for the purposes of compliance or administrative efficiency. That world is about data pooling for better outcomes. They are different things. That world's privacy paradigm will not suit this world. And so we need to radically rethink how all of that works as well. Information technology. Information technology is the engine of this reform. I think information technology will define the organisational boundaries of the future. If we're all sitting here in 10 years' time, we will think it is incredibly old-fashioned uh, to work in a vertically integrated siloed uh, departmental hierarchy. It will be a much more virtual and networked world where information is key and information technology is the engine. Massive change there but a lot of change on the finance side and how public finances work as well. So, going forward, the potential for another revolution, probably in a more evolutionary way than happened last time, but the potential for something of the same scope, scale, magnitude. Uh, and the sort of stuff that I'm talking about in terms of that is really hard. It is really hard stuff. It's hard technically, it's hard managerially, and it's very challenging personally for those of us that have spent 30 years in the current system. But I think we've got the opportunity to again lead the world in public management system reform. And as I said before, I think we're small enough, agile enough, uh, and in innovative enough to do that. And if we succeed, this time we will unlock a huge amount of human potential and creativity uh, and be able to apply this to some real enduring issues in our country, and we might just be able to make some further progress on those issues. Uh, and all of this, I think, has the promise of making a real difference in the lives of thousands and thousands of individual New Zealanders, their families and our communities. Uh, so I think it's worth struggling with and I commend it to you. Thank you very much.